This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. I'd like to start by welcoming you all. Um, my name is Paul Newton from the Cambridge Assessment Network Division, and this is a seminar in our current issues and assessment series. Uh, and for the first time, this is being hosted in Jesus College. Um, just to say a little bit about Jesus College, it was founded in 1496, um, and apparently it was originally supposed to be called the College of the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. John the Evangelist, and the Glorious Virgin St. Radigand near Cambridge. Uh, it had to shorten its name to Jesus with the advent of University Challenge. <laughs> okay, to our session tonight. Um, well, working in the examinations field, our, our attention is often focused at one end of the educational spectrum educational process, if you like, which is the examinations end, and it's easy to forget about the other end, the other end being curriculum design. So I'm delighted that Professor Chris Winch has been able to join us today to help us focus our attention back on the curriculum design phase. Uh, Chris is head of the department at the Department of Education and Professional Studies at King's College London, where he's a professor of educational philosophy and policy. His current research interests are in the philosophy of education, um, in the application of um, research to professional practice, and in professional and vocational knowledge and its assessment. Uh, Chris was the chair of the Philosophy of Education Society of Great Britain from 2008 to 2011, uh, and he's a member of various philosophy-oriented editorial boards as well. Chris's recent books uh, include the uh, include Dimensions of Expertise, which was a 2010 publication, and also a 2011 publication with colleagues, uh, Knowledge, Skills and Competence in the European Labour Market. So, Chris, thanks very much for joining us today, and we very much look forward to hearing your views on epistemic assent and curriculum design. Thank you, Chris. Thank you very much indeed, Paul, for inviting me, and uh, thank you all for attending Perhaps I'll just say a few words about my interests and and background before we start. As Paul suggested, I I am a philosopher of education, but my main interests are in the area of professional and vocational education, and I I guess that will be reflected in what I have to say today. Recent projects I've been involved in have been to do with uh, implementing the European Qualification Framework and linguistic and conceptual problems that potentially arise in introducing such international type frameworks. And more recently, a a project on trying to implement EQF in relation to bricklaying across eight different countries. Um, And that that project, I think, is very pertinent to what I'm talking about today because it, it, it certainly made clear in my mind how important it is that we have the adequate conceptual resources to talk about practical knowledge. And I guess that brings me to my next point. What's lying behind what I'm doing here tonight is um, an appeal, really, for us to think in rather more generous terms about practical knowledge and the role it plays in in the curriculum. And in particular, perhaps, to try and get away from always talking about skills and to try and distinguish between skills and other forms of practical knowledge. And perhaps a key thought that I'd like to advance is that uh, there is an important distinction between knowing how to do something and possessing the technique necessary to do it. And again, I I hope that becomes clearer as we go along. One final word I want to say. I'm not a professional curriculum designer. What I have to say tonight 
is fairly tentative because I'm trying to work through the implications of views on practical knowledge as to how they might play out in curriculum design. So I'm not intending to be arrogant and tell, telling people how to design science or technology curricula or so on. I'm using uh, some examples from particular subjects as il illustrations and invitations to comment and discussion. So I, I hope that's clear. I know that philosophers sometimes have a reputation, sadly, not undeserved, for telling other people how they should think and do things. I hope I won't be guilty of that this evening. So, um, just to indicate the kind of ground I want to traverse, I want to talk about the different kinds of knowledge relevant to the curriculum and perhaps to focus particularly on practical knowledge, to map their relationships, to say something about the novice expertise trajectory. By the way, I'm not advancing a theory of expertise or anything like that. I'm trying to illustrate what might be involved in thinking about that trajectory. And then to look at some, I should say, really potential problems because they may turn out not to be problems, but uh, areas which I think are worth investigating further. So this is what I'm really talking about. I've used this posh term epistemic ascent, but what I'm really talking about is that movement from novice to expert in terms of a body of knowledge. So the focus this evening is, is more on subject knowledge rather than uh, knowledge more generally. But I think the connections between subject knowledge and other forms of practical knowledge are really quite intimate ones, and I hope that comes clearer as we go along. So just to take you through some very nursery slope epistemology, uh, philosophers usually distinguish between these three forms of knowledge, acquaintance, what we gain through our senses, our perception, uh, propositional knowledge, grasp of propositions, and practical knowledge, knowing how to perform an action. So all curricula, I'd suggest, inevitably involve uh, all three of these different kinds of knowledge in different degrees. So just a, a few examples of acquaintance knowledge, just to flesh that point out. Uh, I'm acquainted with a person, I hear a symphony, smell a flower, and so on. Uh, German actually ha quite neatly has verbs that distinguish these kinds of knowledge which we don't have in English so this would be an example of kennen in German as in die Ken John Peel in, in the old song often acquaintance knowledge is necessary in understanding a phenomenon and facsimiles of what we are interested in do not always provide a strong or detailed enough acquaintance Propositional knowledge, this is what we most associate with the curriculum, I guess. Um, to know that a certain proposition, use the P as a placeholder for, for proposition. Classic accounts, uh, first discussed, I think, in Plato's Theaetetus, is the idea that to know a proposition is to have a justified true belief that that proposition, sometimes known as the, the JTB thesis, widely debated in epistemology. Of course, in interesting for us as educators is that P often is accepted and has to be accepted on a testimonial basis. And there is a, a debate about whether or not testimony is actually a sufficient ground for justification. 
And the other point, which I want to harp on quite a bit, is that propositions don't stand in isolation. They form a system, uh, a point adverted to by Wittgenstein in his middle period work, the philosophical remarks, and again paid a great deal of attention to by the contemporary uh, philosopher uh, Brandom in his great work, um, Making It Explicit. And then practical knowledge, which uh, I probably spend more time on than I will on the other kinds of knowledge this evening. Uh, basically, the idea of know-how, or können in German, again, a distinct verb. Here's an example of know-how. John knows how to or can ride a bike. Um, what are associated features of know-how? Well, I, I just draw your attention to a few of them. Um, there are right and wrong ways of doing it, first of all. One can appraise whether or not, or rather one can appraise how someone is riding a bike, whether it's graceful, clumsy, slow, quick, etc. It's an intentional activity. Um, it's something that I do in order to carry out a purpose. So, to sum up, knowing how to do something involves ability, normativity, and intentionality. Appraisability is, is interesting, I think, and um, those of you who are familiar with Gilbert Ryle's work on the concept of mind will recall that he spends a great deal of time talking about intelligence epithets. In other words, the vocabulary and concepts of appraisal that we use when we are assessing somebody's relative expertise in know-how. And I just want to draw your attention to an ambiguity in English, which I think can trip people up quite a bit. Um, I use a schematic sentence there, A knows how to F. In English, it can mean one of two things. Um, It's usually clear from the context just what it means, uh, but people do often get a little bit confused about it. It can mean either that the person A can actually perform the, the action F, Or it can mean um, A can give an an account of how F is performed. Uh, And again, some languages like French and German make this distinction explicit. In in German, it's the distinction between können for my first uh, example there and wissen wie for the second example. And I think there's a similar uh, distinction in French, savoir faire and savoir comment faire. So... Um, you're you're less likely to get into that kind of confusion in those languages. And I just want to say a little bit more about it as well because giving an account of how something is done can can be done verbally, but it can also be done inactively through actions or mimicry, for example. So I want to draw attention to this because it can be the case that appearing to possess the semblance of of a... command of a way of doing something doesn't necessarily mean that you do know, actually do know how to do it. A point that I think um, will be of some importance, I hope, for what I have to say later on. <coughs> now then, I want to talk about different kinds of practical knowledge because this is particularly important for what I'm doing tonight but, and it's obviously important um, in the area of vocational education, and indeed in the area of higher education as well. Um, 
I think very often you, you see attempts to, for example, describe the characteristics of a PhD programme solely in terms of the ability to acquire certain kinds of skill. So what I'm going to distinguish with here is uh, the notion of a skill, which we're all pretty familiar with, but I'm going to be conceptually quite conservative and, and suggest that, if you like, the, the conceptual home of skill is consists in the ability to prescribe certain kinds of tasks. Next up, we have what Gilbert Ryle, in a, in a later work, called adverbial verbs. Um, these are kinds of actions that are done, as it were, through the medium of other actions, like skills. And examples here of particular relevance, I think, to vocational curriculum planners are such activities as planning, communicating, evaluating, coordinating, etc. And these abilities can be exercised through different skills. It gets a little bit confusing in English because it isn't actual obvious nonsense to talk about planning skills. It may be, for example, in a particular occupation, you do need to master um, some kind of diagrammatic representation. But what I'm suggesting is that one can have the skills without having the ability. Um, having the ability to do something like planning, I suggest, involves a little bit more. It involves a certain amount of attention and seriousness. And, and in order to assess somebody's ability to do something like plan and communicate, you really need to see how it fits into the broader kind of activity that they're carrying on. And again, not to harp too much on this point, but th there is a slight problem with, with English here, and that we do use terms like know-how and, and skill to cover a variety of cases. In German, for example, if you look at vocational curricula, you will see a clear distinction made between what um, are called Fertigkeiten, which are roughly equivalent to our skills, and Fähigkeiten, which are much more akin to um, Ryle's adverbial verbs. So you will typically see in such curricula that as, as well, for example... Um, as the particular skills that a bricklayer is expected to possess uh, in terms of the ability to carry out masonry, uh, bricklaying and drainage work. There are also quite clearly specified the various Fähigkeiten that the bricklayer is expected to possess. Uh, and such individuals going through a three-year apprenticeship are expected to exercise a fair degree of autonomy in their work. They are expected to be able to plan, evaluate etc., and coordinate. And, in fact, you might kind of sum up all of that in my third category of practical knowledge there, what I've called project management, that is, seeing through an extended intention from conception to evaluation. And um, if you work through examples, you could easily see that that would involve bring, bringing into play not just one's particular skills in an activity like bricklaying, but also those other second-order abilities of planning, coordinating, etc. So I'm suggesting that it's useful for us to distinguish between three types of practical knowledge in the curriculum. And I guess there is a, a logical relationship between them in the sense that uh, project management presupposes the ability to plan, communicate and evaluate, as well as having skills... And having an ability like planning or communicating presupposes the 
exercise of certain skills. So you, in a sense, the practical knowledge is nested there. There is a, there is a hierarchy. Right, I'm, I'm going back now. Um, sorry, I've, I'm aware that I'm going through stuff rather, rather quickly. Are there any questions for clarification that anyone would like to raise at this point? Don't feel you have to, but um, I don't want to go on and leave people behind too much. Okay, right. Um, I'll now go on to talk a little bit more about propositional knowledge, the second of my categories. And what I'm going to try and show now is that there are, in fact, fairly intimate connections between at least what we call subject knowledge, or knowledge of systematically organised areas of knowledge, and what I call practical knowledge. So here's a very simple example, and, and this is taken really from Wittgenstein's discussion in the philosophical remarks. Our propositions, he argues, form a system. So if I do know that the table in the kitchen is brown, ipso facto, if I have adequate grasp of the concepts of table and brown, I will also know that it's not green, that it's coloured, and that it possesses spatial dimensions. So there is a sense in which uh, the concepts which we employ in propositional knowledge form systems. It's true of systematic, obviously, but also of non-systematic knowledge. And this isn't a matter of grasping formal logic of the kind that you might do in the first year of a philosophy course. It's a matter of grasping what is sometimes called material inference, the kind of inferences you can make in virtue of your conceptual grasp. And here I have a quote from uh, Edward, Edward Brandom to that effect. The kind of inference whose correctnesses essentially involve the conceptual contents of its premises and conclusions may be called material inference. So the example I, I just showed you um, to argue from the table in the kitchen is brown to it is not green would be an example of material inference in that sense. So I'm suggesting that grasp of subject matter does ipso facto involve grasp of the ability to make at least a range of material inferences of the relevant kind. And then, of course, in curricula, we typically have um, knowledge organised systematically through curriculum subjects. And here one may, one may expect to see that the entailment relationships are, are more systematic and hierarchical than in the case of contingent knowledge. So you might begin to see something more like uh, an axiomatic structure in the case of at least some subjects than you would in others. Certainly not true of all subjects, but uh, I guess it's true to say that at the very least in systematically organised knowledge, some propositions are perhaps more salient at the very least than others. Right, so an observation about concept formation here is it seems to follow from what I'm saying, and this is hardly an original observation, um, I remember seeing it very nicely illustrated in, for example, Tizard and Hughes' book, Young Children Learning, published over 25 years ago now. Um, there's a strong element of connectedness in the way in which uh, concepts are acquired. And it doesn't follow that complete conceptual grasp is attained in one step. So although you acquire concepts in a subject, and indeed in non-systematic knowledge, 
in, a, in the way Wittgenstein again uses the expression, light dawns over the whole. There is an element of that, but you don't necessarily grasp the whole of the conceptual structure of the area that you're working in at once. So there's a kind of complicated relationship between awareness of connectedness and growing awareness of connectedness. So what I'm suggesting, I guess, is that conceptual concept formation isn't a one-off process, but a, a gradual one. I'm digressing now to work that uh, you're probably most of you will be familiar with to one degree or another, the work of um, Paul Hurst, um, obviously a very distinguished philosopher of education, who's probably best known for, for work that he came, if not to repudiate, at least to distance himself from in, in his later career. Unfortunately, I think, because there are some very important insights in Hurst's idea of forms of knowledge. I think the most systematic exposition of this was in 1974. And Hurst isn't talking about subjects as such. He's talking about the ways in which the human mind organises knowledge. And he initially distinguished about seven of these. I'm not necessarily convinced by the forms of knowledge thesis, but I think that a lot of what he says about forms of knowledge is quite pertinent to our understanding of subjects. So I'm going to stay with this for a moment because I think there are some very important insights here. Hurst argued that there, there is systematicity in the curriculum knowledge that we ask children to acquire. And one can actually break that down a little bit more. First of all, there are central organising concepts within a subject. Secondly, there are propositions which tend to be salient um, and which perhaps govern the kind of inferences that you're expected to make within the subject. And it follows from what I was saying earlier on, of course, that as one learns not just the central propositions but uh, the peripheral ones as well, one learns to make material inferences within the subject area. It's part of what one is acquiring when one is acquiring subject knowledge. And the ability to make material inferences is a form of practical knowledge. It's not a form of propositional knowledge itself. Hurst also went on to point out that uh, at least at the higher levels of expertise within a subject, um, one becomes acquainted with characteristic ways of validating knowledge already acquired and characteristic ways of acquiring knowledge. And Hurst argued that one can see very significant variations in, in how this is done. Just to take a simple example, um, empirical subjects like natural sciences, or physics, for example, would use experimentation, for example, both to validate uh, truth claims and to acquire new ones, whereas a subject like history will use completely different kinds of methods, like documentation, documentative research. So different subjects have different characteristic ways of validating and acquiring knowledge. So it's part of the growth of expertise in a subject that one moves from concept formation to the ability to um, be fluent in 
ever-widening range of material inference, um, the ability to validate knowledge that's already considered to be secure, and finally, to acquire new knowledge. And the, question, the interesting question, I guess, of curriculum designers would be, if one accepts something like this schema of Hearst's, what kind of sequencing within particular subject areas is appropriate, and when should it occur? So that just reiterates a point that I've just made. Understanding conceptual and propositional relationships involves the ability to make material inferences. So we don't merely learn facts or ideas, but the relationships between them. And that I take to be one of Hearst's central insights, and it's one that I think is, is worth hanging on to. So there is the question of transition, what I'm calling epistemic ascent here, that um, very often children have to learn through testimonial methods. But testimony-derived knowledge also entails the ability to make the appropriate range of inferences Otherwise, you have inert propositions that can't be put to use. But as one moves in in expertise in a subject, the question of justification, how do you know that that's the case, becomes a more pressing one. And students increasingly are encouraged to be able to answer that question in a way that's appropriate to the subject in which they're working. So the question of justification of one sort or another within a subject matter, comes to the fore as one progresses through the curriculum. That's, I think, a fairly general point about curricula. So on the view that I'm developing here, know-how, even in what you might call academic subjects, is pretty essential. The ability to make the appropriate kinds of inference is a sine qua non of progression. And I think that's pretty widely accepted. I'm not, I don't think I'm saying anything particularly radical here. But there is, a, there is an interesting question, I think, about what kinds of practical knowledge do we want to nail down, as it were, in the curriculum? And when should these different kinds of practical knowledge be introduced And maybe this is uh, a little bit more controversial and I feel that I'm perhaps um, on more shaky ground on this point. So I'm going to suggest a fairly conservative approach to this issue, more more as an invitation for discussion than than through any visceral commitment on my part. Um, We do need to recognise the interdependence of the three kinds of knowledge within the curriculum and that there is an optimum sequencing of their introduction, which depends on a whole range of considerations, both internal to the subject matter and dependent on the the view that we have of the schemata through which children and young people's knowledge develops. It doesn't necessarily correspond to the most elegant account of the subject matter, So, for example, 
assume for a moment counterfactually that um, the logicist program of deriving mathematics from logic were true. If it were, it wouldn't follow that one the best curriculum or pedagogic approach would be to assume that you learn formal logic first and then derive simple arithmetical propositions later. That simply wouldn't follow. Um, the conceptual structure is very important to take into account, but it's one factor among others. So my modest proposal is to try and explore the non-negotiable constraints and to go on to explore the implications of such constraints within particular conceptions of individual subjects. So it's a kind of... It, it's Hurstian in spirit saying we need to respect the differences between subjects and recognise that progression within different subjects won't necessarily be the same or take place at the same pace. And this is where um, I ask for your forgiveness. I'm not a scientist. I'm trying out these ideas with a particular area based broadly on our national curriculum. Um, so we have the introduction to basic conceptual structure which draws on and builds on non-systematic conceptual frameworks in everyday life, but systematizes those. Um, given some examples there, and then there's the question of how they are related through appropriate exemplification, explanation, etc. And I'm suggesting that if a subject is systematically organised, then that should somehow be recognised both in the curriculum and the way in which it's taught. So ad hoc approaches to knowledge acquisition carry with them the danger of the loss of the sense of systematicity and may lead to significant gaps in knowledge acquisition. And I'm an admirer of uh, Gilbert Ryle, but here's one thing that I don't agree with him about from the concept of mind. Surgeon must indeed have learnt from instruction or by his own induction and observations a great number of truths. Ryle is not actually saying, but he's, he's almost suggesting there that one could learn the systematic knowledge necessary to carry out a branch of surgery uh, through one's own induction and observations. Um, I pose the question, would the surgeon be allowed to learn in an ad hoc manner before being allowed to practice? And I, I don't know of any medical system that would actually allow that, even though it's a bare theoretical possibility. Um, I suppose you have humorous examples like um, Tobias Smollett's novel, Roderick Random, which, if I remember it correctly, an 18th century lad is press ganged aboard a British man of war and ends up as a surgeon um, without going through medical school. So I'm, I'm suggesting that, that this approach, which I, I guess appeals to a certain form of British pragmatism, is not the way in which we actually take seriously uh, professional formation in the professions. Interestingly enough, though, very often in the non-professional occupations, it seems to be perfectly okay. Uh, in, in the bricklaying project I told you about, it was depressing to hear um, 
theoretical knowledge dismissed as nice to know but not necessary to know. Uh, why keep the lads in the classroom for an extra hour when they want to be out there in the <coughs> workshop, etc., etc.? So there does seem to be, in some respects and in some areas of British vocational life, a, a predilection for that kind of approach. So let's have a look at um, something like a well-known procedures adopted in different subjects, like experimentation. Um, obviously, something that involves very particular procedures developed over long periods of time. Now, the question arises, should pupils be allowed to discover what these procedures are by themselves? Can they, as it were... Uh, reinvent themselves what's taken the human race centuries to acquire. Clearly, one needs to be able to acquire basic conceptual structures in order to understand what something like a complex set of procedures like experimentation is. And one needs, as I've suggested, to be able to fluently use the language of cause and effect, albeit at earlier stages in the curriculum, in a relatively simple way. This does not involve necessarily involve acquiring a principle or principles which underlie experimentation. That seems like a slightly subtle distinction, but I, I take the acquisition of a principle to be something rather more robust, the ability not just to explain or, or even enact what the principle states, but the ability to apply it in a range of relevant situations. And it seems to me that one can be fluent in the material inference associated with a particular discipline and area without necessarily uh, being able to use the principle although clearly that kind of fluency is an essential prerequisite to the acquisition of such principles. So, um, just to follow that thought through a little bit further, um, to be able to replicate a procedure such as an experiment is not the same kind of thing as being able to conduct an experiment although in certain superficial respects it may well appear to be so. And it may even be that someone very skilled at replication may go on to actually be able to conduct experiments. We, cannot, we can't disallow that possibility. With replication, I'm suggesting, I can inactively give an account of how it's done without actually being able to do it. So I'm suggesting we need, we need to distinguish replication and conduct. Um, so I'm suggesting that being able to carry out something as sophisticated as an experiment, moving right from hypothesis formation to evaluation of outcomes, is a kind of third-order know-how in the sense in which I introduced that term earlier on. That is, it's a form of project management which requires the ability to plan, coordinate and evaluate, as well as having very specific skills connected with observation, manipulation, the ability to read instrumentation, etc. 
So we are actually talking about a very sophisticated form of practical knowledge, which one gets to through the ability to do, to practice certain skills, to be able to engage in material inference, uh, to be able to plan, coordinate and evaluate and so on. So expertise, I'm suggesting, at the higher reaches of the curriculum, in, involves know-how in managing knowledge. Uh, but one needs to acquire know-how in order to become an expert. Um, so it might appear that when minimal features of know-how have been acquired, so has an ele elementary form of expertise. And that seems to me to be a very easy transition to make, but I'm putting in a plea here for distinguishing between fluent replication and actually having the ability to carry out the activity in its, in its fully-fledged form, if you want to put it this way. Um, another way of putting this, I think, might be that one might very well acquire and be fluent in a range of techniques which are necessary to master before one can, say, for example, conduct experiments without actually being able to, in relevant operational conditions, design and carry out experiments. Um, another analogy might be that uh, if I were learning bricklaying, it's clearly necessary for me to acquire a range of techniques doesn't mean to say that I know how to be a bricklayer because there are various kinds of exigencies that bricklayers have to work under. If one thinks, for example, of constraints of time, finance, working with colleagues, working at heights and so on, that actually make the work of a bricklayer far, far more than just the practice of techniques that they may have learned. And there's something similar going on in subject knowledge, I think, the ability to replicate well-understood procedures is not necessarily the same as being able to conduct those procedures. So this is really a, um, a reiteration of a point I made earlier on. The different kinds of know-how that I drew attention to are, in a sense, nested in the, in the sense that the, the higher-order ones are presupposed by the lower-order ones. That suggests there's a certain sequencing to them. They are significantly different in kind. And the final point is that it, one can envisage circumstances in which one can possess the semblance of a form of know-how without actually possessing its substance. So planning requires skills of various kinds. One can exercise these skills without actually doing any planning. I can, as it were, go through the motions of planning something or coordinating something. I'm sure we're all familiar with that kind of situation. And I think here the key terms are um, not just the appropriate skills in the appropriate context, though clearly that's important, but it's to be able to do it with the appropriate degree of attention and seriousness as well. Even something like trying to do something, I think, good example of one of Ryle's second order uh, forms of know-how. Even something like trying 
has got to be done with the appropriate attention and seriousness if it is to count as trying. We all know of people who look as if they're trying very hard to do something, but we know perfectly well they're not. So uh, uh, this is where I might tread on a few corns, and I, I'm doing this in all humility. I'm, I'm not an expert. I'm just raising some questions um, as to whether or not some of the distinctions I've been making here actually have any purchase on what goes on in our national curriculum. And um, here's an example from history. Um, the attainment targets in a branch of Key Stage 3 history, inquiry and the use of evidence. And um, without reading through it all, I thought the first bullet point was quite interesting, that pupils should be able to investigate individually and as part of a team specific historical questions or issues, making and testing hypotheses. What does this actually mean? How do we interpret an attainment target like that? It can't surely mean doing this as a professional historian does as part of a research programme, although I'm certainly prepared to admit that very talented students might be able to do that. As I said, I don't want to exclude that possibility, but the curriculum is there for the the age cohort, not just for a few very talented individuals. And I'm suggesting that maybe we need to be a little bit more careful in specifying what we expect from pupils. Um, So if we go back there, maybe it's not making and testing hypotheses. Maybe there's a there's a better way of phrasing what we're doing if we want to distinguish clearly what a a student at Key Stage 3 is doing from what a professional historian might be doing. And to bring that up more clearly, I'd I'd like to contrast the science curriculum at at the same stage. Um, Because I think this is interesting, because the, the writers of the science curriculum, I think, approach this issue in a slightly more cautious way. Um, again, if we look at bullet point number one, um, students are invited to use a range of scientific methods and techniques to develop and test ideas and explanations. It doesn't look that different on the face of it from that, but I think there is a significant difference because I think you could do that... um, in a way that suggests that one is involved in more replicative activity. One can fulfill that descriptor, if you like, through replication rather than through the conduct of original experimentation. And that seems to me to recognise more clearly that there are stages in development of these abilities of acquiring knowledge. Key stage four, um, however, looks a little bit more ambitious. To plan to test a scientific idea, answer a scientific question, or solve a scientific problem. Um, Arguably raises problems of interpreting in the full sense. Do we really expect a key stage four student to be working 
like a professional scientist? Probably not. So how do we distinguish? But we could interpret that conservatively as well as replicative activity. And the final one that I want to look at um, is design and technology. A subject, I think, that really only existed in its current form after 1988. Um, and here are the four areas of activity specified in design and technology. Interestingly enough, right from key stage one, developing, planning and communicating ideas, working with tools, equipment, materials and components to make quality products, evaluating processes and products, knowledge and understanding of materials and components. So it's, it's quite an ambitious prospectus, particularly from that stage onward. And particularly if we look at these are characteristic Riley and second-order forms of practical knowledge, developing, planning, communicating, that we have here. Um, and it, it's almost as if one is developing those abilities right from the start, along with more, if you like, skill-based practical knowledge to do with working with tools, equipment and materials. So it is at least arguable, I think, and, and something worthy of discussion, that the know-how involved here needs to build on skills and an acquaintance with the properties of various materials before such higher-order forms of know-how can meaningfully be introduced, such as planning and evaluating. And by the end of Key Stage 2, I haven't actually got the descriptor there, but um, it rather looks as if they should be able to engage in project management, actually designing an artefact, carrying through its construction in teams and evaluating the efficacy of the outcome. Again, something you'd expect a professional engineer to be doing. So, a few remarks, tentative remarks about progression in practical curricula. To distinguish that there are different, to recognise there are different kinds of know-how and there is an element of hierarchy in them. And also, I think, to distinguish between inactive accounts of how something is done, I can demonstrate how it's done, from actually doing the thing, being able to really carry out that activity in the appropriate circumstances. So a few tentative conclusions, and I do want to stress they are tentative. Um, so extended primary acquaintance with properties of materials may be a necessary part of some subjects in order to build both propositional and practical knowledge of them. In terms of propositional knowledge, we need to pay attention to a secure grasp of conceptual relationships and material inferences that embody conceptual and factual relationships across the range of curriculum subjects. That's not necessarily something radical at all. I remember a paper by Sig Price published, I guess, nearly 20 years ago now, which argued that, for example, assessment through examination is probably the most appropriate instrument to enable examiners to see whether or not those material influ inferential abilities are acquired. 
And as far as practical knowledge is concerned, um, I'm suggesting that we, we need to retreat a bit from talk about skills and to recognise the different kinds of practical knowledge that there are, explicitly recognise them in the curriculum and uh, the, the relationships that they have with each other and to be aware of the relationships between practical and other kinds of knowledge and in particular the close connection between propositional grasp, the systematicity of organisations of propositions within the subject and the ability to make inferences between them. And that's it. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.